If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. Don't Hide the Scars, a weekly podcast focused on addiction and recovery. Created by the nonprofit Pain, parents and addicts in need, and founded by Flint Anderson. Arlena Allen, a host of a One Day at a Time podcast. Thank you for joining founder of Parents and Addicts in Need, Flint Anderson, myself, Jason Lachance on the Don't Hide the Scars podcast. Hello, Arlena. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. Absolutely. I mean, when a woman has a tagline, if it was in a bottle, a bag or uh, blue jeans, I was doing it. You got to speak with her. That's right. Listen, I'm very honest and transparent. <laughs> Maybe to a fault. <laughs> uh, you're, you're my kind of recovery person. You just put Yo, it all listen, out there. I'm just saying what everyone else was thinking. That's yeah. exactly Or right. doing and unwilling to doing, be honest yeah. about, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm come on. Yeah, our our nefarious ways that, uh, you know, imbibing (laughs) whatever. Listen, I'm not going to say it was all bad. Let me just say that. That's right. right. (laughs) (laughs) And I I, I, now with that said, have you experienced this? Because I've had the backlash with, uh, you know, me talking about my stories, other people's stories. I don't know that we've got it yet on this podcast, but people of of being so transparent that, yeah, I had a lot of fun, too. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fun. Yeah, no, I, I have not had a lot of backlash about talking about it, but uh, I think it's so important to just be honest and recognize, you know, when I quit drinking and doing drugs, it was like breaking up with the love of my life. Right. It was the thing. And to be perfectly honest, especially in my younger teen years, drugs and alcohol actually saved my life. If I had to feel all the feelings I was feeling, I don't know that I would have survived. But at some point, you know, my savior became my executioner. Like I really I could have died several times. And and so it's just, you know, we're just people of extremes, right? We just live that extreme life. Yeah. Well, when we're tortured with the, the big T little T of trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're trying to escape that, that, you know, I think that's for maybe the people that aren't addicts don't understand. They don't get it. That, you know, like you said, I don't, I don't know that for me, it was more my mid twenties. I, I agree with you. I don't know that I would have survived without booze and the occasional drug. I mean, I had no coping skills. I had nothing Mm -hmm. to help me process my feelings to resolution, uh, especially like trauma. I had um, some sexual abuse when I was very young by a neighbor and uh, I I didn't even know that that was wrong. Number one. And I hear that a lot with the women that I work with in my coaching business that, you know, they don't realize that that's, that that's wrong, that they're being harmed. It becomes like normal in a sense. Like they don't know any, they don't have any context or perspective as a young person. And so they're carrying around all this guilt and shame. Like, you know, that was my experience. I was carrying around guilt and shame. Like it was my fault. Like I was a bad person. But, but and, don't you, but don't you find that most kids, you know, teens, young adults, we, even under normal circumstances, we don't have coping skills. 
you know, we, we, yeah. we always we always talk That's about true. the brain around here and how that mm-hmm. brain does not become mature till the age of about 26 without drugs and alcohol. <laughs> I know, that crazy. Right. <laughs> right. So so there's a time span, you know, in between the time you had, let's say, big T trauma. Right. Uh, at, at maybe 10, 11, 12, whatever it is. And now you're in your early 20s. And let's say you're not even doing drugs and alcohol. How how do you even cope with that? Yeah. You know, um, I don't know. That's just a question I've always I've always asked. You know, what's so interesting is Tara Brock talks about covering strategies. Tara Brock is like a Buddhist meditation. She's a psychotherapist. She's amazing. She wrote this book called Radical Compassion, Radical, and then the other one was Radical Acceptance. But she mm-hmm. talks about how we have these covering strategies. Like we're trying to cover the pain. Like nobody knows how to resolve it intuitively. Mm-hmm. So we cover them. We cover them with things like uh, distraction, right? I always think say that the purpose of obsession is distraction. We obsess over drama drugs, alcohol. In my case, it was like finding the love of my life or uh, earning a lot of money. You know, I thought those were the things that were going to save me. And I didn't recognize or acknowledge I was trying to be saved from my present moment because in the present moment, I, there were, I just couldn't uh, accept my feelings about myself or just the pain I was in. I, I was so disassociated from my pain as well that I just kept focused on all these uh, addictions, really. Right. And that's interesting and important that you bring up that disassociation. You know, people, we, we don't even necessarily understand what it is we're trying to deal with at times. Like you said, you didn't yeah. understand that it was wrong, that it was harmful, you know. And yeah, I mean, gosh, <laughs> I've been the same. I thought, oh, this is just normal. This is how things go. This is how life is. Well, Did you, know, you the- have that sense that you, there was something wrong with you? Like it was yes. your fault? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That seems to be a reoccurring, a reoccurring experience that, it, oh, it must have been my fault. I don't know why people, I think it like goes along with that whole not good enough thing, which seems to be a universal human experience, just not good enough. Like mm-hmm. we go into comparison, everybody else looks like they're doing better. I am faking it. I'm this imposter. Everybody else got the manual. I didn't. And I'm just like, you know, going to be found out. It's like a terrible way to move through life. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's where we start to put the mask on and, and people pleasing. I know you were a big people pleaser too, correct? Yeah. Super into like image management. I spent a lot of time and energy decorating the outside, but you know, when I first, when I got sober, I was terrified because I was like, I don't have anything going on on the inside. These people at these meetings wanted me to work with other women. And I was like, what? I don't know how to manipulate them. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think I could. Uh, are you sure? Are you sure you want me to work? Yeah, it was terrifying. But you know, if you're desperate enough, you'll do anything that they ask you to do. A wife, mother. Um, how did it go mm-hmm. with your husband also in recovery? How did it go with talking to your sons about addiction and making that really bringing them a, awareness about it? I mean, it's a necessary part that that Flint, myself, the whole pain organization pushes is have those conversations Uh, with your kids. And it's almost, you know, God, I mean, what point is, is too young now? I mean, it's crazy. We've talked to people that have started substances at eight. Yeah. I I, I don't think it's any age. I mean, you want to start, I mean, eight, nine, 10. I mean, look, if I, if I really had to put a number on it, I, I would say 10 or 11, 
you know, to start talking to kids about this. But, but you know, it's interesting. I want to go back to, to, to one thing real quick. You know, everybody talks about my generation. You know, my, my dad's the World War II generation, right? And, and how mm-hmm. nobody talked about issues. Nobody talked right. about, guess what, gang? It hasn't changed today either. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I, I mean, most families that I have, that I've dealt with, they don't talk about issues as, as much as we didn't, you know? Uh, so, so that's why I think we push it as hard as we can here, you know, because somebody has got to start talking to their kids about this stuff. Um, oh, yeah. Especially in today's world with fentanyl and, and, and some of those oh. nastier drugs that are out there. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So, so again, to answer your question, I think it needs to start at, at least at 10 or 11. Yeah, we, you know, so it sort of just came up naturally. So I was involved in 12-step programs. And so was my husband and people would come to the house, right? I'd be working with women. They'd come to the house. We'd go into a room. We'd have discussions. And or uh, for a long time, my husband held a meeting at our house. And so a bunch of men would come over and they'd sit in the room and they'd, you know, be chatting afterwards. And, you know, the kids would be like, you know, who is that? Or why are they here? Or what's going on? Or we'd, we'd go to uh, somebody's uh, sober milestone celebration, um, things like that. So they were, it was just always in their world. And, and we would occasionally have an, op- like, it would just come up naturally um, in, in conversation about, you know, well, mommy doesn't drink and daddy doesn't drink. And we used to, but we're not the kind of people who my body doesn't process alcohol normally. And I behave, <laughs> I behave badly. You, you kind of <laughs> or I, I behave in a way that I, I don't, uh, it's not a li- in alignment with my goals. Shall we say. <laughs> Get into some shit, huh? Yeah. Right. Um, and so we just kind of talk to them about it um, as, as, they're able to understand it. Like when they got to a certain age, I was like, look, you can do drugs, but you might end up with the dick in your mouth. Okay. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Isn't that horrible? It's true. <laughs> though. It's true. I mean. It's true. Yeah. Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying uh, that that's a bad thing, but if, again, if it's not in alignment with who your, your authenticity. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm now. And you roll the dice and we would tell our kids, you have both barrels pointed at you. You got it. Right. You have yeah. the gene. We called it the crazy star chromosome. It's like you got it on both sides. So yeah. listen, you you may and it's about you can start, but you might not be able to stop. And I don't know where, where that line is for you. Sure. Right. I don't know where it is for you. And I was totally naive. I thought my kids were totally straight. Like, like they never left the house. They're always online playing video games. Thank God for video games. I thought that would keep my kids safe. They're, they're in the room. I know exactly where they are at all times. But uh, when we moved out here to Idaho three years ago, um, my younger son, I did not know that this was a thing. Like Snapchat was not a thing very long ago. And I got sober a lot. I got sober in 94. So what I didn't know is that you can have drugs delivered to you through Snapchat. And I did not know that I've been out of the drug scene so long that, um, I, you know, because in the realm that I live in, I don't talk about the problem. We talk about solution. We do kind of talk about the problem in the sense that people need to express their pain 
And my role is to like everyone's, everyone needs to be seen, heard, and understood. So my role, I make people cry for a living. That's what I tell people. <laughs> I, hold, I hold, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? But I hold safe space for somebody that they can express their pain and I'm not there to try to fix or I'll, I, I will occasionally offer context and perspective, but I'll ask first, but it's really, I see you, I hear you, I understand and I was there too. There's like this connection. And, and they say that uh, empathy is the antidote to shame. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the world that I live in. And, and we do that with our kids too. So when it came to, you know, the details about how kids are getting a hold of stuff these days, I was completely illiterate. I did not, I did not understand how it worked today. And I didn't know the signs to look for. And I was, I was blindsided when it, when it happened in our family, even though we had talked to our kids from day one about, we love our kids. We protect our kids. We, we say, we're sorry when we make mistakes. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, we, we teach, we give our kids coping skills. We give them space to share their feelings and, and still, and still it happened. And I, well, you know, that, 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 that still proves my point. All right. right. With every parent that I've talked to, Arlena, we, we've had over 7,000 families march to this office, you know, over the wow. last 10 years. And it that that still proves my point. No matter how much you talk to your, your, your kids, no matter how much you believe in them, you give them the coping skills, you, they're still going to be teenagers. Sure. They're still going to lie to you. They're still going to, they're, they're going to fuck it up somewhere <laughs> along the line because they're, su- <laughs> yeah. they're supposed to. Yeah. That's, that's their job, to. right? Yeah. That is their job. And if I have to hear one more parent going, my child tells me everything. <laughs> no. Okay. No. Itch, please. Right? It's just bullshit. Yeah. So, yeah. so again, proving proving my point. I'm not here to be right all the time. Obviously, I mean, but there's a right. lot, of, but I'm right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. These kids are going to be kids, yeah. and that, that and you're right. There's no parenting manual for anybody, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't have one either. So you're just going to have to do the best you can as parents. And, and, but you have to become more informed. You have to become more educated on this. You have to know that your kids can order on Snapchat while they're having pizza with you and watching a movie, you know, for, yeah. for, for, for parents that tell me to go, well, I, I, and I'm sorry, Arlene, I don't mean this against you, but, but for parents to go, well, I never knew that would happen. Well, Jesus, how could you not? With everything that's yeah. going on in the drug world today, mm-hmm. why aren't you doing everything you possibly can to educate yourself on the what ifs? New Perceptions North, the premier drug and alcohol treatment and recovery center in Central California. A full continuum of medically supervised top quality care with programs for detox, inpatient residential treatment with dual diagnosis, intensive outpatient treatment, sober living, support groups, and more. With 50 plus years of combined experience and sobriety, Flint Anderson and Thelma Gatlin Wilson provide adult men and women with the highest caliber of professional health care, treating each client with compassion and respect in a safe, comfortable environment to begin the process of recovery to proudly create and sustain a life without addiction. Call 559-978-1507 or visit newperceptionsnorth.com. Yeah, here's the trippy part, right? So we, 
I'm thinking we're cool. We've been teaching our kids how to process and cope with their feelings. And we've been very open about our recovery and we're doing all this stuff. And I, I am aware that there's a certain amount of experimentation that happens and not everybody crosses the line eventually and all this stuff. And I am in the world of recovery. And when And when we found out what was going on, it was a shock. I was, I was truly shocked because we thought we had, you know, educated our kids. We thought we were educated, but when it was happening to us, we didn't like know what to do. Even the medical professionals were not helpful. There was no clear, um, and I thought, how can this be? We had an emergency room doctor testing my son and his brother, the emergency room doctor's brother had been a heroin addict and had died like two or three years prior to the time that we had been there. And he was um, misinformed about some of the drug stuff. Like my son was taking Suboxone. Right. He was wow. taking a bunch of other stuff too, but not heroin. But he didn't know that if you have never had heroin and take and you're taking Suboxone, that it gets you high in some way. Like right. he was not aware of that. And this is an emergency room doctor whose brother was a heroin addict. Like most, he didn't. Most know. doctors, Arlene, most doctors, I've wrestled with these guys for the last 15 years. Most yeah. of them do not know addiction. They they can no. they can tell you the chemical makeup of a drug and no. and, and, and what it does, but they know nothing about addiction. They know nothing. Yeah. No. And when I asked, I said, "Do you have any board certified uh, addiction specialists on staff?" The we went to two different hospitals. They didn't have any in right. either hospital. Right. Yeah. Right. Everybody needs a doctor. Drew. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, and it's so, it was shocking to me to learn. I interviewed somebody on my podcast, a, a Dr. Uh, Powers, who, uh, Jason Powers, who's a board certified addiction specialist. And um, he was stating that the board for plastic surgery had been established like decades prior to the board for addiction. And I thought <laughs> that just speaks to our, that just speaks to our priorities. Right? Yes, We'd rather save our faith than our ass. Yeah, let's fix it all on the outside. Let's fix the outside. Let's ignore what's happening on the inside. You know, and that it just speaks to our culture too. My my dad, uh, bless his heart, when he retired, he was a um an SLE teacher at the jail. And he met all these people that were in jail. Uh, the almost the majority of them were there on drug related, drug or alcohol related issues. Right. You know, whether, you know, they got caught and busted for like stealing or armed robbery or, you know, DUI or, but it was all related to drugs and alcohol. And so our country does not know our, we're so anyway. No, I no, we're at, we're, answer, we're asked backwards on all of it. We, we, we're we asked really backwards are. For sure. Most, most crimes are committed under the influence of something. Yeah. Absolutely. They are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that desired fix. Well, that's just our country to do everything. We got a problem. Ah, we'll address it when it gets really bad. Right. right. <laughs> and it's getting there. I yeah. mean, coming into work. This no, morning, it's bad. Yeah. I, I, I don't know about there, but, you know, where we're at in Fresno, California, we now have it up that fentanyl awareness billboard and right. they are all over yeah. the place. Yeah. We've been working oh, yeah, the hard fentanyl on is so scary. Uh, it's, it's unbelievably scary. You know, it's, 
Yeah. And, and, and parents, you know, when we talk about experimentation and that most kids are going to experiment with something, they don't, they really don't understand that drug dealers now are lacing fentanyl on pot, cocaine, obviously the fake pills, the fake M30 pills, um, it's being laced on everything. So yeah, mom and dad, maybe your child is not a drug addict. Maybe your, your, your child is, um, you know, not an alcoholic, but the fact of the matter remains is that they try to experiment with something out there today. It's, it can be a one and done and it's over. Yeah. yeah the experimentation it, is it's Russian roulette and, it, and they don't, they don't understand that. I think there was uh, I just, I was doing some research and I think there's been like almost a hundred thousand deaths uh, in the last is it the last year due to fentanyl yes. overdose? Yes. Mm-hmm. I yes. mean, it's outrageous. But, you know, but the other thing we're not talking about, we're, we're neck deep in the fentanyl issue here. And yeah. I, we work with DEA and Homeland and, 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 and all of our district attorneys here. But, but you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that um, these, these parents, this is what's interesting. I, I almost lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, <laughs> it happens parents, to me too. I was like, well, wow, where did I go? Side effect from drugs. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but now I can blame it on age a little bit. So that's, that's, oh, there, a, yeah. that's another good yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of times parents want to blame something else for their kids' drug use, whether yeah. it's uh, ADHD, bipolar, depression, mm. anxiety, and, and a lot of times I'll tell these parents, you think maybe they're just a good old fashioned drug addict. No. Do you think they just kind of wanted to go out and, and experiment and got caught up? It, not everybody has trauma. Not everybody has a mental health issue. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Sometimes your kid is just a screw up. And sometimes they're just going to go out and try it. And, and we hope that they don't cross that imaginary line at, at some point. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you said it earlier that that, you know, kids, there's not not everybody's going to become a drug addict. Not everybody's going to become dependent on a drug. But yeah. again, always going back today, you experiment. It could be one and done. And the last thing you want to do is go to your kid's funeral. Yeah. Oh, me. my God. Yeah. I mean, my, my nephew is 27 years old and he's had four friends. OD, and he's sure. like a good kid. He went to a I good know. school. He went to a good college. He's a professional and people are just experimenting. They think they, they think they're doing a little cocaine or they right. get some fake pills or whatever. And it's laced with fentanyl. It's over. It's over. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. It's so scary. I mean, we're just seeing the number continue to rise. It's rising. It's yeah. not it's not getting any better. And and actually, people in Washington, D.C., they actually think this is this is China's covert war against us. And I have a tendency to believe them um, because the majority. Does of that make country, sense, though? Yeah, it I, does. OK, so I just have to I, I just have to. So they make all their money off of us. So why would, would I mean? So it doesn't make sense to me that they would want to kill us because we're there. They're making all their money off of us. We're their cash cow. We're the consumers. We, we are. But again, most people back back in Washington and most politicians today and even myself, we, we believe that this is China's way uh, instead of, you know, dropping a bomb and taking over the world. Sure. This is this is their covert actions to because they know we're a pill society. 
they they know that we have this we like major drugs. issue. We like drugs, yeah. all right, and we, we want like every drugs. pill for every ill, yeah. and and so they're shipping it into Mexico. It's almost like Russia and Me- uh, Russia and Cuba back in the '60s. You know, mm-hmm. um, now it's China and Mexico, and it's yeah. coming over. You know, it's coming over the border in droves. Look, yeah. you, can, you know, you can't tell me as the United States that we couldn't stop that if we wanted to. Um, and that's a whole other topic that we don't yeah. need to get into. But uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that we've got so much of this stuff coming over the border. We, we, we can't stop it. We can't control it. We can't make arrests. And until we change the laws and the penalties for these drug dealers and these drug runners that are coming over, this thing is just going to get worse and worse. I heard that in Texas, they're calling it poisoning so that the yes. drug dealer can be charged with murder. Correct. That's what we're doing here as well. We just had yeah, we just had brilliant. some laws changed in California to call it poisoning uh, because yeah, fentanyl it, it, poisoning, fentanyl poisoning. Because yeah. if if you go any other route, um, it's it's hard to approve intent. Um, mm-hmm. But with a poisoning, but but here's the here's the rub with it. When somebody gets busted now, they they will actually, and I'm giving you the layman's terms. They will sign a piece of paper stating that they know that fentanyl can and will kill somebody. So if it happens again, now you're going to be charged with involuntary manslaughter. So it's still a slap on the wrist the first time mm-hmm. for somebody to get caught. Does it suck? Yeah, but it's a start. At least it's a start somewhere with this because we 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 just can't put these people in jail. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's uh, I mean, it's a big hot mess, and it's like, well, then what do we do with the kids that are that that are struggling, right? You know, you talk about telling your parent the the parents that their kids are screw ups. I mean, um, I think I might frame that in a way that you know they're they're um you know they make mistakes they experiment they're curious they're you know they're they're going to do all these things like if somebody told me that um this would happen like actually here's the thing is i saw because of you know our lifestyle and everything i saw the isms in my child sure sure. i saw it i saw it and and we tried to do whatever we could to prevent it and at the first sign you know we shipped him off to rehab in another state cuz i didn't want him to make druggy friends in his own backyard right right we shipped him off to rehab and we're in idaho we sent him to california for 30 days and because he was underage he was exposed to some really hard luck cases right like sure. kids who are you know and it's so interesting i talked to this um, neurobiologist um Judith Crisell, she wrote a book called uh, Never Enough, and she talks about the signs and the precursors to addiction. And she talked about how uh, risky behavior is one of the signs. And I think as parents, we don't really know what to look for. We don't really know the signs, right? right? So risky behavior, the earlier they start uh, experimenting, the more likely they are that they'll develop something. And so as a parent, you know, looking back on my own experience, what would I have done differently? You know, I don't really know that there was a whole lot I could have done differently, Sure. Um, because as soon as we found out, you know, we did something about it. We found a right. backpack that had a fifth of fireball and a bag of weed in it, right. you know, and, and it was like pretty shortly thereafter, he went to rehab, you know, it was like, we're not even going to mess around with this. And we, you know, we got a lot of pushback from our community saying, I think you guys are overreacting. Wow. <laughs> like, Whoa. Can you believe that? 
Yeah. yeah. People told us that they even co- other coaches, people in the recovery community are like, are you sure you guys aren't just overreacting? What like, is wrong with you? those people? I don't know. I, but I took it. We took it very seriously Good for you. because yeah. of, yeah, because of our, and you know, he, he was uh, on something and the ER doctor couldn't identify what it was. I think he was probably taking some kind of fake pill. It was a blue pill. I don't know what it was. We okay, looked it up. I do. I do. What is it? If it it was a blue pill, it was more than likely what we call a press pill, a fentanyl press pill. And here's and here's why the emergency room didn't know they'd had for a long time. They did not have tests to test for fentanyl. That's that's most Uh, emergency rooms in the United States did not even have a test for fentanyl. Hell, we have we have them here. You know, um, and if it's a blue pill, and if it was, oh yeah, we do. And if it was stamped with an M with the, with the initials M30 on it, then for sure that was. But doctors don't know that. Yeah, look it up. It's called an M30, right? And it's it's a blue. Yes. It's a blue pill. Yeah. It was interesting because um, my friend who is a physician's assistant, I showed her the picture, and she looked it up, and she, and she died, and she described what he should have been displaying in terms of behavior, mm. but what he was actually displaying didn't match. So I was like, give well, a, that was give, some give me a, give me an explanation. What was, what was he acting like? Well, um, I don't remember what he was supposed like, They're like, Oh, if he's taking this pill, he shouldn't be acting this way, but he was like lethargic and he couldn't, he was speaking slowly and he, um, he was kind of emotional and, um, I, I, I took video of it because I wanted to show it to him later. But uh, and I, I don't remember what they said, how he should have been behaving, behaving. But I was well, like, it must have been a fake pill. Yeah, well, look, op- opioids. Um, that's that was my <laughs> that, that, I was the king of opioid addiction and opioids can do two things to you. They can make you, of course, very lethargic and, you know, mumbling of your speech and uh, and very emotional. But they can also give you a bump. It can also kind of jack you up a little bit and, and, and get you going. That's that's early in use. Um, uh, so so more than likely, again, if that's that blue pill. Yeah, you're just going to kind of be like yeah. this and mumbling your words and drool coming I'm out of blinking the side of your really mouth. slow. Ab- abs- and, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's um, that's that's a big, big part of it. Um, you know, but again, going back to what you were saying a few minutes ago about the hundred thousand deaths. What we're not talking about in this country is we're not talking about the number of people, two things, the number of people that have overdosed and lived. And oh. we're right. And we're not. And we're and, and, and so why aren't we talking about that? Why aren't we talking about where are we sending those people to treatment? Yeah. Be, because those mm-hmm. people are still out there. And if they're not getting help, they're still using. Yeah. And so this thing is just a revolving door is is what it is um we we never seem to address all the issues at one time we always want to address this piece that piece this piece and the fact the matter is yes look i'm an opi i'm recovering opioid addict if i had taken fentanyl and by the way i have had it because of surgeries and those kinds of things and yeah it is it is an unbelievably great high but but if i overdose from fentanyl and they take me into the hospital and they don't have some sort of follow-up or a place to send me 
afterwards, my ass is running out of that hospital to go use mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Because I'm going to yeah. go right into withdrawal symptoms. And the number one reason why we don't get clean is because of the withdrawal symptoms. They are too mm-hmm. damn painful. They're too hard. And until our society understands this, all, all we're doing is putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. That's all yeah. we're doing. They, right now. they don't put. Uh, yeah, they should be putting these people through medical detox. Right. Once they're aware of. You, 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 but, but Arlena, now it opens up a whole nother Pandora's box of insurance. I own a treatment facility as well. So not everybody has a PPO. A lot of people have Medi-Cal. A lot of people have government aid insurance. They will not cover treatment. And if they do, they don't pay anything worth a shit. Okay. To these treatment centers in order for us to keep our doors open. So a lot of times we can't even take the Medi-Cal client. We can't take the Obamacare client because it just, it's not that we don't want to, we, we can't afford to take the person. Can't afford to do it. Yeah. Right. Especially in California where everything is through the roof, you know? So it's, 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 it's an enormous mess that we're in right now. How did you yeah. guys, because you said your son was 17 at the time. How, boy, I bet you were up against a lot just to get him into a facility. No, it actually was pretty easy. We uh, uh, identified one that had a juvenile program, the camp in Scott yep. Valley. Yep, I know. I, in yeah. fact, I was just going to say that it had to be the camp. They're one of one of the, only a couple that take minors here in, in California. Yeah, we were, we were lucky because of our connections. Uh, we had a family friend who started the camp. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Yeah. And, and so, and plus being in San Jose and we, that's where everybody went, right? <laughs> it was like the local, it was like the local rehab center. And we were aware that they had a juvenile program. So I guess we just got lucky that we, we knew about it. And that's where we said, cause they were telling us that the social workers here were saying, don't send him to the one locally. We'll just make friends. And the likelihood of him relapse, they'll have like new connections. And so you don't want to get sober in your own backyard. So we sent him away for a month and he was exposed to a bunch of, I mean, he was going through rehab, but there was a guy that was like 15 or 16, who was already a parent. Right. And then there were other kids that were, this was their fifth or sixth rehab that were just, you know, just off the off the charts and their poor parents were just trying to keep them alive right you know it's it's just terrifying so i i it was really an eye-opening experience for me because we thought we were kind of in the community and and had a lot of resources but when it was our turn in the barrel we were kind of at a loss and so grateful that we had community to support us through that process and calling the professionals and the counselors and we did the whole thing. Well, you know, and, and I also hope that, um, that, that you understand this and I'm sure you do. And that because a lot of people don't, there is no cure for opioid addiction there. It's, it's manageable. Uh, I, I'm by any means, am I cured? I'm I'm not, I I didn't use yesterday. I didn't use today. I don't know what tomorrow holds. Uh, Opioids are a very tricky drug. A lot of, a lot of triggers, 
Sure. That 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 continue. Um, again, I don't have many today. I don't have that obsession or compulsion to use anymore. But people have to be enormously careful because as as we get older, you know, we'll just take the surgery thing. You know, people are going to have surgeries as as you get older, or you break a leg, or you've got. I had I had open heart surgery. So every time I've had thirty five surgeries, Arlena. So. So I well, have that's to a be, lot. It's a lot. It's a boatload. But, Several baker's dozens, ladies and gentlemen. You bet. <laughs> but we always have to have that plan for discharge, right? Yeah. E- even yeah. though I'm in recovery, we have to have that plan because look, yeah. there's a difference between uh, um, uh, full-blown addiction and dependency. You can become dependent on an opioid in seven days. Right. That's, that's, the, that's the problem you know, and you don't want that, you don't want that continuing and turning into long-term use because you are going to go right back into your, your addiction as quickly as possible. If you don't watch it. Yeah. That's terrifying. It's like, we used to hear that saying, you know, once an addict, always an addict, you know, and that's true. You know, I definitely protect my own um, sobriety. You know, I practice abstinence. I'm uh, open to other people practicing Matt, you know, I, I have no judgment on how people maintain their, you know, they just stay alive, you know, and, and just keep on doing your best to evolve. We're all evolving. Right. So, right. um, either we're evolving or devolving. So it's that kind of speaks to that one day at a time thing. We're just, you know, just for today, I'm just going to practice self-care and connecting with others and focusing on the solution. It's like, I don't need to focus on the darkness. You know, it's that saying that we don't find the light by further investigation of the darkness. It's like, I'm clear what the problem is. Let's just (laughs) focus on, let's just focus on the solution. Right. right. Uh, When did the things finally come to head for you? You're 27 years coming up on 28, right? I celebrated 28 years in um, April. So it's been a minute. I got sober. Yeah, I got sober when I was 25. I kind of crashed and burned early. Um, And but but what did it for me was the whole sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was I I, um, had a really bad experience with my sister one night and, you know, uh, physically hurt her. And nearly um, anyway, it was all bad. I had like it was like one of those, I uh, woke up the next morning with the incom- incomprehensible demoralization again. Yeah, again, and I was just so sick of it. And, and that began my journey of asking the questions, am I an alcoholic? What makes somebody an alcoholic? What crossed the line? Why can these people drink with impunity? They're drinking as much as I am. What makes me different? And it just started me on this path of questioning. And I started feeding my brain and reading all these books. And it took me, I practically lived in the self-help section at Barnes and Noble, but it took me two years of wrestling with all these ideas before I was really, and trying different things before I was really ready to surrender. And, and there was power in surrender. We think of it as a weakness, like you're giving up or you lost, but there was power in that surrender for me. And I was, I had that gift of desperation. I was willing to do anything to stop drinking and doing drugs. And, and that's when uh, they told me I would go to these 12 step meetings and they would say, all you have to change is everything. And I was like, sign me up. There is nothing nothing that I want that I, that I had, that I still wanted. I I I had always wanted to be somebody else anyway, my whole life, you know, so 
Yeah, I didn't see a problem. And then the four step, they were like, oh, you got to work these steps. And these, this four step, everyone's like afraid of it. I was like, you mean this woman has to listen to me complain about all the people who did me wrong? Like it's licensed to bitch. And she has to sit there and listen to, are you kidding me? Oh, so excited. <laughs> well, it, was, I, it was amazing. I think sometimes when people come to the surrender point is they think it, you know, it means, Oh, this is the point we get down on our knees. Yes, that's kind of true. But really, it's the time we start to stand on our feet in life to move mm. forward and take onus of ourselves. You know, that's why people always exactly. get, anyone that talks to me, I'm a I'm a firm believer of the 12 steps, as I've said here and even Flint, we we think, hey, if we just had a 12 step program in like high school, oh yeah, it, 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 we don't have to oh, call yeah. it something, but just really kind of working that it's got so much of a brilliant uh, blueprint. It allowed empowerment. And yes, I yeah. had to strip away things, but through that, I started to gain empowerment boundaries. Oh, right. thank goodness for boundaries. Personal yeah. responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I called it the, you know, I had to, for those, I really encourage people to try the 12 steps. However, there will be a segment of the population who no matter all the context and perspective that I offer to navigate certain challenges that are uh, presented very stereotypical challenges. Um, I will give you context and perspective so that you can uh, navigate through those challenges, challenges successfully and gain the benefits of the program. However, there will be a certain segment who still will not be willing to go or can't or whatever. That's fine. And so I reframed a lot of that stuff as a sorting process. We're sorting through the past and we're sorting through uh, personal responsibility, letting go of what's not yours so that you can bear the weight of what is right. right. And for me, I was such a people pleaser. I was like taking responsibility for other people and trying to control them or save them or whatever. Um, and then when they would knack, right, I would be resentful. <laughs> you know, it was a mess. It was a mess. Um, and then the, the, the inventory process helped me to sort through my past, recognize my part uh, in the presence of somebody who was like loving and compassionate. And, then, and we were just looking at the facts. We were looking at reality, right, to see uh, what was the truth and, and what, was, what was my responsibility. I, I learned, you know, it showed up for me over and over again as I was taking inappropriate responsibility for others and not responsibility for myself. I was blaming other people for my lack of happiness. And once I realized that I wasn't responsible for someone else's feelings, I was responsible for my own and that I could learn to be honest in a compassionate way. Then that was when I started finding my power. I, I found my internal locus of control as opposed to an external. And some people think, oh, step three, turn your will and your life over to the power. That's an external locus of control. Only if you think that that higher power is outside of you. And what I learned was that it was inside that look. So it all is with its internal. We are way more people think, oh, powerless over. I'm not powerless over alcohol. Anybody who ingests a chemical will have the physical chemical reaction that alcohol has or drugs or whatever. It is a biological, physical, scientific thing. It's nothing personal. Everybody right. is, is powerless. But that's the whole point. You take it so you feel different. Right. right? 
but uh, it's, and so that's kind of like, that's kind of how I think of it. It's just, let's present different contexts and perspectives so that people can take in these ideas and sort it's to me, it's like a big sorting process. What's mine. What's not mine. I'm glad you bring that up. Yeah. It's a, a, if sometimes newcomers like, what the fuck does it's an inside job mean? Well, Well, it is is an inside job. So it's it's all very confusing. Yeah. What led you down the path of where you really wanted to share your story, let alone doing your podcast? Of course, Arlena, the host of uh, One Day at a Time podcast, plus self-esteem coach. You do private coach. What really really took? Because you were pretty successful in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I did. You know, I just for the last I did uh, high tech sales for companies like Adobe or um, HP. And I did, you know, I was in the startup world and um, the money was great, but I hated it. It was not in alignment with my core values. And uh, at, at some point, I just couldn't do it anymore. And I got, co- I got certified to be a recovery coach. And, and my focus is really focus on self-esteem in the sense that we need to change our identities and reinvent ourselves. That's the name of the class is reinvent. You know, we have to reinvent our identities. Um, It speaks to sort of like the growth mindset um, as opposed to a fixed mindset. A fixed mindset is I'm bad at math. Whereas a growth mind says I can take a class and learn how to get better at math. You know, we have these ideas about ourselves that um, I'm not a good person. And so we can, uh, you know, break that down, these subconscious beliefs that we develop in childhood, you know, without the context and perspective, we develop these, this uh, identity, you know, and a lot of times we have these limiting beliefs. And so um, I, I really saw over the years that, we only allow into our lives what we believe we deserve on a subconscious level. Like I would challenge anybody to wherever you are listening to this, look at your outsides, look at your physical environment. That is a reflection of what you believe you deserve. Every decision that you make, we're living in the, in the residual of all of yesterday's decisions, everything from the, the way we choose to style our hair, to the clothes we wear, to the people we surround ourselves with. And it's all based on what do I believe I deserve? Right. And so I am sort of obsessed with this idea about sobriety through self-esteem, because when we can and listen, I'm talking about positive brainwashing here. You know, it's like we're being brainwashed all the time, but let's be intentional about what we allow into our minds and into so that we can start changing our identity to be that of somebody who is able and deserve that is worthy and deserving of all the good things life has to offer. It's all in our minds. It's all if we can deconstruct our subconscious mind where all our beliefs uh, are held, we can uh, reframe some of those things and we can start, you know, change attracting and choosing better. And so that's just, that's really been my obsession is to help people, you know, break down their thinking, find the error and the presuppositions and, and change some enter uh, reframe, uh, some of the beliefs so that it's more positive and they can start allowing better things in their lives. So, so when do you start the process with somebody um, once they become get clean, clean and sober, when do you, when do you find that that, that should actually begin? Cause I've got some thoughts on that. 
Yeah. I, you know, my coaching process, I start, I work with women who are actively trying to quit. And so it's, for me, it always starts off with the self-care process. Um, you know, we develop survival instincts uh, when we're children, like a disassociation, right? And so it, it allows us to survive, but it's not very, and even, and I, I deal with a lot of successful professional women because that ability to deny the self, to get work done, uh, come, shows up in like achievement. They're typically very successful, but their relationships are a shambles because they're so disconnected from self. How can we communicate to somebody else what we want or what we need in an authentic way if we don't know ourselves, sure. right? We've been living the life that other people think that we should live. And so it's no wonder that people come to me. They're like, I don't even know why I drink. And I'm like, of course you don't. You've been so disassociated from yourself for so long. You don't even know. You don't even know what you think or you feel. You're not authentic because you've been in survival mode for so long. Right. Yeah. And so the I, process, we start with the self-care practice and then we move to building community and support. And then I have a five phase hypnosis process where we sort of go back and do some age regression and uh, de, uh, sort of deinstall some of those triggers that were established in childhood. We go through a forgiveness of others and forgiveness of self and, and a confidence building. So it's like a five phase process, but all the while we're sometimes it just depends depends on where they are. There, there's some crisis management stuff that needs to happen. Sure. So we might involve something like a, you know, a pseudo four-step to sort of help them recognize that they play a part in the relationships that are causing current crisis that are causing triggers for them to drink. Right. So it's just, it kind of depends on it, but I've just been in the game for so long that I've, I've, uh, I can sniff it out in like two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get across to people? Cause when I'm listening, what you're saying is, is purpose over pleasure. Cause pleasure can be, well, with three people here talking, uh, an insatiable thing, right? We all sought escapism and a sense of pleasure, whatever methods we use, but really instilling, you know, sense of purpose. Cause once you start to get sense of purpose, like you said, even over these, these women that are big on achievement, you know, and that's, yeah. that's a pleasure trigger as opposed to a purpose of what did you do amidst the work that got achievement? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's, it's, yeah, that's really, yeah. You're speaking to, to our, we have two levers, we avoidance of pain and the seeking of pleasure, right? Those are, mm. and we, when you break it all down, those are the two levers that we have. And so, um, you know, the way I sort of approach, especially the high achieving women, it's like, if you drink the night before, you are not able to perform the next day. And for some women, the not being able to perform and produce and, you know, attack the day is, uh, and it's like, what happens to you? It's like, oh, I feel bad. And I'm like, let that pain burn you a little bit. Mm. Right. The next day that let it burn you a little bit. Let's not cover it and pretend like it's not happening. You know, I'll validate their pain. But it's like, yeah, take that in because and, and for some women, that's that's enough. They And then we get to what is your core why? And that speaks to the purpose. Like, what is my purpose in the world? When you get to somebody's, there, there's an exercise. What's like, what do you want to achieve? What's important about that? What's important about that? What's important about that? When you get, when you do that five or six times, you get to the core why. It's always, it always seems to be some sort of, I, I want to have an impact and help others. 
you know, yeah. you know, fulfill my purpose and impact others. And sometimes then I say, then that's when you get up in the morning and I say, you need to do your self-care practice, you'll be faced, you'll be at the crossroads. You're going to say, I'm just going to go do this, check my email first, or I'm going to sit down and meditate or do the journaling or do the yoga or whatever self-care practice they decided to do. And I'm thinking in that moment, think about how shitty it feels. Like when you let that pain burn you, think about how shitty that feels. We are more motivated actually by avoidance of pain than we are going towards pleasure. People mm-hmm. will do 10 times more to avoid losing $5 than they will to earn it. Like nobody wants to, you know what I'm saying? $5, yeah. $100. We're more avoidant to pain than we are pulled towards pleasure. But I think it's important to have both. Sure. So sure. Absolutely. I forgot what the question was, but hopefully that was helpful. <laughs> that, was, that was it. I was talking. I forgot what you asked me. Purpose over pleasure. You know, kind ah, of the, yeah. the pain on the on the on the uh, on the back end kind of method, so to speak. I know that's yeah. Both know, are but. both are important, but people are definitely more motivated to avoid pain and humiliation and. Sure. Makes sense. So, yeah. <laughs> Ironic though, that when we fall into addiction, we humiliate the shit out of ourselves, <laughs> don't we? Isn't that hilarious? And that's the whole thing about, oh, you don't want to tell people you're sober. You would show your ass in public, right, loaded. Right. But God forbid you say, I don't do that anymore. Exactly. Right. Ass backwards, right? right. <laughs> there we go. Ass backwards again. <laughs> ass backwards again. Uh, it just goes to show the logic of our brain sometimes and the necessary yeah, work thereof. to rewire. Yeah. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. That makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, that is that's right? actually hilarious. Yeah. We, yeah, we, yeah. We had no problem in going out there and making complete asses of ourselves, right? Yeah. But 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 for some people to go out and go, I'm I'm clean and sober. Uh-oh. Yeah, I don't, I, mean, I, don't, I don't do that I don't, anymore. People always say it's like, uh, how do I tell people that I don't drink? Just say, yeah, I don't. You, if you say it, yeah. people receive the information with the same intention that you offer it. The, here's the difference. I don't, I don't drink anymore. Or it's like, yeah, I don't drink anymore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's all in the delivery, right? It's all in the delivery. It's like, it do, don't, don't make it a big deal. It's just like, just be nonchalant. It's not a big deal. And but you if know, you act like it's a big deal. Yeah. And you know, it's, and you know, it's interesting. And I always use, I always use my golf guys. Okay. <laughs> as kind of, you know, cause I, I belong to this golf course and there's, there's like 25 to 30 of us that, and, and I'm kind of the older guy in the group. Everybody's, you know, five to 10 years younger than me. And, and, and they all drink. Right. And of course they all know what I do for a living and know that, you know, I don't drink and I don't do drugs anymore. And it's just not a big deal to them. Sure. You know, and I'll and I'll, yeah. Sc- yeah. And, I'll sc- and I'll screw with them sometimes. Like I'll come in, I'll have a horrible round of golf, right? And everybody meets in the grill room, and they're they're having beer and cocktails, whatever it is. And I'll go, damn it, that just sucked today. I'll take a jack on the rocks, okay? <laughs> and you will hear twenty five guys go, no, okay. I mean, now they've got my. <laughs> not that I'm going to ever do that, right? Yeah, but, yeah, and, yeah. but it's hilarious because they've got my back. You know, it's Aww, like, no, we'll, we'll yeah. kick your ass if you ever take a, a, a <laughs> drinking you know, yeah. you got setting, yeah. setting up your environment to support you. Yeah. Absolutely. I always say, tell, tell people you're sober, you know, tell people you're not drinking today or whatever, right. say whatever you want, but it's important to let people know where you're at. You bet. And I think and not, the important, not, go ahead, Arlene. Sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say it not, and not be like all super heavy about it. 
Right. You know, it doesn't have to be like this heavy, embarrassing confession thing. Well, and I think the interesting thing, what, you know, like Clint, you just illustrated is we get that in sobriety, the gift of who we show up for and who shows up for us. It really starts to yeah. reveal what our mm-hmm. connections are, you know, what the the real bonds are. And, and there's something about you can start to process that and go, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that person toxic traits. And, and I even bring toxic traits to them. You know, best we just kind of you over there, me over there. It's better for life. And <laughs> it, it's hard, but it's true. And it's a wonderful gift that we start to receive. It's so funny that you say that. So I, I live by this idea of if you spot it, you got it, right? There's this idea that people are just mirrors. They just reflect back to us what we like or don't like about ourselves. And again, it's like empathy and compassion is is the antidote, right? It's like that person that is rubbing you the wrong way, they feel toxic or whatever. It's like, well, what? how am I like that? You know, and, you know, my prayer has always been, you know, what, God, just change me. I, I don't know what's going on with that person, but I know that if, if I see something in them that I don't like, I, that I am somehow judging myself. Mm-hmm. And that is an area that needs to be healed. That right. those are, those people are my teachers as offensive as that is to my ego. It's like the people I dislike the most, I go, oh, that's, there's a part of me that now knows, oh, that's my teacher. They're giving me an opportunity to practice compassion for them because I know I have that and I hate it about myself. Right. And my sponsor a long time ago said, she laid down the gauntlet. She's like, can you love your unlovable parts because recovery is about recovering your whole self. And so that has been the challenge is, can I love my unlovable parts? Where can I bring more compassion to that person who is so offensive to me? You know, where have I behaved selfishly, destructively? Where have I been, you know, selfish and self-centered or whatever it is that I'm judging, you know, where have I been? Uh, my thing is um, self-righteous arrogance. I can't stand people who are condescending to me, right. but where, but I, I do that too. Sometimes I do that too. <laughs> yep. And do I want justice or do I want mercy? I want mercy for my self-righteous anger. Like I actually don't want to carry that self-righteous anger. It's exhausting and it, it hurts me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't actually really want it, you know, and, and I have the gift of, you know, self-exam, a self-examination process. That person doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, where can I, where can I bring self-compassion? You know, it is tempting to just, you just fuck off over there and I'll just be over here. Right. And maybe that's appropriate. You know, there are people like we were talking, we always talking, you know, I always talk about boundaries, right? right? It is important to have boundaries, but sometimes we can use that information for our own evolution. Yeah. And that, that's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then thank you for laying that out. Cause yep. yeah, not every situation is go, go the fuck over there. I'll go the fuck over yeah. here. And sometimes <laughs> yeah. it is. And sometimes we, sometimes do. it is. Yeah. And that's why it's so confusing. Recovery <laughs> is confusing because it's hard. Yeah. To, it's hard to know, but that's why we need each other. Yeah. That's why we need each other because we can't see when we're emotion will color your perspective and you can't see things clearly, right? It's context right. and perspective. And that's why we need each other. They say that alcoholism is a disease of isolation and connection is the cure. And the reason why connection is the cure is we, we get that empathy and compassion from others instead of the judgment 
or the um, justice, right? I don't want justice right. for my uh, character defects. I want grace. But that's what I get from the, the other people in recovery is they offer me grace. And as I receive that grace, I can then offer it to others. Yeah. And so that's why we need each other because it's hard to tell when you're in it and you're emotional, what you're supposed to do. So it's good yeah, to get right. outside perspective. Yeah, very valuable. Well, Arlena, if people want to know more about the uh, One Day at a Time podcast, your self-esteem coaching, your private coaching, how can they find you? (laughs) Well, they can go to SoberLifeSchool.com and there's links to all the things. And I do offer a free strategy call if anything I have said resonated with you and you just want a little, maybe just need a plan. Maybe you just need a plan. I'm happy to jump on the phone with you. There's so many resources. It can be super overwhelming. So, and everybody is different. So uh, people can set up a 30 minute, free 30 minute strategy call with me and you kind of give me the lay of the land. I can make some suggestions or present a a coaching plan, uh, but there's lots of free resources too. So money should not be an obstacle. And so um, I'm just happy to share all the resources that I have. Well, for mm-hmm. those listening or watching, you can click uh, the links down there in the podcast description to connect with Arlena. My friend, thank you so much. It's always lovely to talk to you. Arlena, it's thank always you. good to have a chance. Yeah, it was so nice to meet you too. And I can't wait to have you on my podcast. You Jason sent a guest. He's a great guest. And so you're up next. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to it. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, Thank you so, so much. much. You Thank bet. you. Thanks for the work you do. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at painnonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. This podcast contains the views and opinions of hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page.